So last week we begin this tiny book of the New Testament called 1 John. It's only five chapters, 104 verses. I don't know how slow or fast you read. It takes me about 12 minutes to read the whole entire book. So very small, but volumes have been written on this tiny little book. Now, what's really cool is John tells us why he has written this. Chapter 1, verse 4, hopefully this is memorized by the end of the series. These things I have written that your joy might be full. Anybody can take a little fullness of joy in their lives? Yeah, I hope after five or six weeks we are filled with joy. And this is a sustaining joy, by the way, right? The source of all joy is Jesus. Uh, I, I personally don't think joy can be sustained outside of Christ. We'll talk some about that. He is the source of all joy, even in the midst of hardships, trouble, suffering, and seasons of life. John understands this. John was with Jesus when he said, in this life you will have tribulation. Anybody know what the word tribulation means? Trouble. Trouble is lurking. Proverbs says that trouble is out there. Man was born to trouble. Surely as sparks fly upward, you live long enough, you're going to go through suffering, hardship, and trials. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. And the beauty and the joy that we have is we are linked to the one who has overcome the world. John wrote Revelation on a penal colony. John was at the foot of the cross when the one he would follow was killed. So John's not naive, right? He's this aged disciple who has been through the joyous experience of following Christ, the upper room being filled with the Spirit, uh, a leader in the early church, and seeing the end of the world literally, how it all ends. He's the one who heard Jesus say, uh, there's mansions in heaven, I'm building these abiding places for you. And this aged apostle, before he dies, if he, if he leaves one word to us, he says, make sure that joy characterizes those who follow Jesus. This should, this should be what characterizes, people should look from the outside and say, why are they so stinking joyful? And he says, look, I'm writing this, that your joy might be full. Last week I gave that illustration of children, right? Children want things repeated. They look just so joyful at times. And it's because G.K. Chesterton said they can live fierce and free. Why? Because the big hand of mom and dad has their small hand. And I think in many ways that's what John's saying. You know, there is a father God who has a big hand and he can hold our little hands. He is the source of all joy. Now, the bigger culture's catching on to this. Uh, the study of happiness is only about 25 years. In fact, we know more about happiness in the last 25 years than the previous 200 years. Now, this week I picked up a special edition of Time magazine called The Science of Happiness. Put the cover on the screen. New discoveries about how to live a more joyful life. Now, science uh, is wonderful at research, and they can knock on the door. They can't get all the way there, because at the end of the day, they're going to tell you how to be joyful outside of God. But they can get really close. So if you read this report, and I did, they'll talk about exercise, diet, meditation, uh, work, life balance, etc. All these things are contributors to joy, and it's true, right? We are spirit, soul, and body. And so we know this to be true, and the book of Proverbs and Psalms tells us many things about uh, keeping that relationship with God joyful. One of the profound things in the study, however, they had a map of the world. And they actually rated from 1 to 150, the industrialized nations of the world, who were the happiest people. Where do you think the U.S. came in? No, we weren't at the bottom. Think about it. Come on. There's some really bad places on earth if you've traveled uh, out of 150. No, we're 18th, right? 
But we are the most powerful, free, prosperous country in the world, so you'd think we'd be pretty high. Uh, we came in 18th. Uh, in the U.S., the states that had the happiest people, North Dakota and Vermont. Now, here's what surprised me. Number one in the world, Finland. Now, most of us think, geez, if I could just get to California, Hawaii, uh, Texas, anywhere where there's warm weather, weather, I would be more joyful, right? And yet the three most happiest places in the world are cold as all get out, right? Explain that one, right? Isn't Carson Wentz from North Dakota? He always looks happy. You ever see that guy? Of course, we know the source of his happiness, right? Experts list 10 things that bring joy. Number one, develop a core set of beliefs that nothing can shake. And of course, we had that, right? We have the scriptures that have made us wise unto salvation. The final part of the study asked the question, does spirituality make a difference? Can spirituality make us more joyful? Uh, scientists say yes. Uh, they can't agree on why it does, but they agree it does. This is Time Magazine, pretty cool. Um, they have found again and again that those with a spiritual practice or those who follow religious beliefs tend to be happier than those who don't. Study after study has found that religious people tend to be less depressed and less anxious than non-believers, better able to handle the vicissitudes of life than non-believers. A 2015 survey by researchers at the London School of Economics and the Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands found that participating in a religious organization was the only, this is Time Magazine, the only social organization or activity that will give you sustained happiness, even more than volunteering for a charity, taking educational courses, or participating in a political community event. It's as if a sense of spirituality and an active social religious practice were an effective vaccine against what they call the virus of unhappiness. Pretty cool, isn't it? When it comes to religion and spirituality, it may not be what you believe or how you believe that protects you from unhappiness so much as the fact that you believe at all and you practice these beliefs with others. Scientists have long known that having strong social ties is one of the greatest guarantors of our happiness. Religion isn't the only social tie that binds, but it is a very strong one. Think about it. How many people sing with other people once a week? Most people sing on their birthdays, sing in the shower, sing alone. We sing every week. We celebrate every week. It's a beautiful thing. It's what God has done for us. Some of you have read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography by Eric Taxis. His famous book was called Life Together. He titled one of his chapters, um, The Day Together, and another chapter, The Day Alone. He said both are essential for spiritual success. He said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has a profound pitfall and a peril. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and one who seeks solitude without worship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Bonhoeffer said we need a day with God and a day with others. Now, we talk a lot at Calvary Chapel about community. I want to talk today about the joy of knowing God personally, because I believe that's the source of all joy. And when I read 1 John, I get flashbacks to the Gospel of John. 
And I don't know if John had flashbacks, but I, give, I flash back right about now to John's first experience with the miraculous following Jesus. Now think about this. He's a teenager, he's young, he's left his father's business, and he probably has doubts swirling in his mind, is Jesus who he really said he was? And he begins to follow Jesus. They haven't even started ministry yet, and Jesus does something very foundational. He brings them to a wedding. He's going to teach them that celebration and joy matters. It really does. And they get to the wedding, and there's no agenda. It's just, hey, celebration. Jesus gets tipped off by Mary that they're running out of wine, which is an embarrassment to any host. Jesus said, my hour isn't come yet. But we all know he changed the water in the wine, and yes, it was wine. All these linguistic gymnastics to make it grape juice doesn't work. And the reason we go through it is we're afraid Christians are going to drink wine. They're going to drink wine anyway. It was wine. John looks back and says, this was the first of all Jesus' miracles. Isn't that amazing? There's seven in the Gospel of John. This was the first. This wasn't healing blind eyes or less fortunate people like lepers and so on. Turning water into wine. And it was a miracle because the whole fermentation process was skipped. Jesus was showing his men and everyone there, and by the way, there was no abracadabra, no loud voice, no stretching of the hands. Just The water just turned to wine in Jesus' presence because Jesus was showing them that he had come to bring joy back to man's relationship with God. Wine was a symbol of joy in the Old Testament. Not only was Jesus the joy bringer and the wine maker, he was bringing joy in our relationship to God and joy in our relationship to one another and joy back to the marriage relationship. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And John looks back years later writing and said, this was the first miracle where Jesus showed forth who he was or what he says, his glory. And I think John, when he looked at that, said, Oh my gosh, these things I've written that your joy might be full. And his joy was full, he said, because we have come into fellowship with him. I tried to break down that Greek word for you last week, koinonia, which means friendship or partnership, which is all about shared interests and shared resources. A friend is someone I can tell my deepest thoughts, my deepest desires, my misplaced passions. Did anybody ever have this experience the first time they read the Bible? If you were like me, I read John, then Acts, and then like Philippians and some easy things in the New Testament. And then one day I thought, well, let me start from the beginning. That's the way you read most books, so I, I go to Genesis. And there's the creation story, and Adam and Eve are married, and so on and so forth. And then this phrase comes up, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they had a son. And I thought, well, yeah, the Bible's a holy book. It's afraid to say they had sex. So it used this word, they knew each other, and they had a son. Problem is, I read the rest of Genesis. It was like R-rated. Polygamy, incest, uh, all kinds of things. So I thought, well, that's not the reason. And of course, we know the reason why it used that. Because sexual intercourse, or that physical activity, was speaking of a greater reality of what we would call intimacy. Intimacy is life's missing ingredient, whether you know it or not. Everyone craves it, everyone longs for it. We long for intimacy with God, and we long for intimacy with others. Intimacy is the mingling of souls. It's a, it's a deep connection with someone else, a sharing of our innermost thoughts and feelings. And the Bible says in a profound way in many places that we can know God 
intimately, or what we would call have a personal relationship with God. This is what drew my wife into the kingdom. We were dating in college, and someone had, was leading me to Christ, gave me a Bible sharing with me. I'm calling her on the phone. There's no cell phones back then. Calling her on the phone, talking for hours. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what I'm learning, blah, blah, blah. She comes up on a Saturday night. And my friend has his girlfriend there, and the four of us are having dinner. And my wife said to the girl, where do you go to college? And she said, Villanova. And she said, why did you choose Villanova? And she said, because God told me. My wife's like, God told you? In her mind, she's thinking, oh my gosh, I went to 12 years of Catholic school. Uh, God was always talking about my house. Two of my aunts are nuns. I want God to tell me where to go to school and who to marry and those things. And there was like a desire to know God personally. And it's really what drew my wife into the kingdom. There is a joy that comes from knowing God personally that can never be taken away. Right, that great chapter in Romans, can pearl or sword or nakedness, nothing can separate us from the joy and the love we have in Christ. But here's the question. Can you know that you know that you know that you know God? Can you know? And the answer is yes. And John starts in chapter two, verse one, by saying, little children, these things I have written to you that you may not sin. Little children, he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. I've written these things that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, and we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know, that we know, that we know him. You can leave today knowing that you know that you know that you know. If we keep his commandments, oh boy. Well, don't stress on that. It just said if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, right? He who says, I know him, this is generally like the Grammy Awards, right, where they thank the man upstairs, and they don't keep his commandments. In other words, the lifestyle doesn't match. This person's a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we know, that we know, that we know. I'm adding those, by the way. It's not in your Bible. Verse six, he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. John thinks it's so important that you know that you know that you know that you know that he gives us a little diagnostic here that we can all walk through. Uh, the reason he does is quite simple. There is a default mechanism in all of us that in times of stress or difficult times, we all revert to. One is guilt and the other is shame. They are the paralyzing twins of humanity, guilt and shame. It comes from your family of origin, the way you were raised, the schools you went to. Uh, by and large, it's all over the world, and we even bring it in times of stress to our relationship with God. Instead of understanding God's grace and mercy and how we came into the kingdom, we kind of get back in the striving or earning mode. Uh, we lose God's favor. Cults, by the way, seize on this. Aberrant teaching seizes on this. If they can keep you in a place where you're never good enough, never know if you're going to heaven, never have assurance, then they can control you. And, you know, I've watched this for a long time. In 1983, when I became a Christian, it was a profound change. And by the way, Paul writes in Corinthians that 
we know that we know that we know because he's given us the spirit as a down payment. See, at the end of the day, I wake up with Jesus on my mind. I have this God thing in me. You know why? Because that conversion, the Holy Spirit invaded your being. The word of God just recreated you. And for the first time, there's an awareness Awareness of truth, an awareness of life, an awareness of sin, right? So when I sin now, I sin now because I want to, not because I don't know any better, okay? So in 1983, when I come to Christ, like the grass is greener, the sky is blue, I'm telling everybody about Jesus. I don't know anything, but I'm telling them. I'm in frat parties, drinking beer, telling them about Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I'm preaching to relatives. I'm driving everybody crazy, and... People will be like, how could you have the audacity to say you're going to heaven or that you know God? And when people say that, it has a form of piety to it or humility. But what it shows is they do not grasp what I would call an understanding of the radical forgiveness that comes in Christ. The radical forgiveness. Look, it says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He's the propitiation, the substitute. It would take me weeks to expound on that. The mystery of godliness is probably beyond human understanding. Here's how it works. If you wrong me and I tell you it hurt me, right, and I, and, 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 you know, I just, just pour my heart out, that really hurt me, and they, someone says I'm sorry, I could say I forgive you, you wronged me. But God can't do that. You know, God just can't say, okay, you made a mistake, Adam and Eve, let's move on. Because his holiness, again, which is beyond comprehension, is far more difficult. And God himself had to become the substitute. He became the sacrifice in our place. Again, it would take a long time to explain that. When you understand that, there's radical forgiveness. It leads to freedom and joy. It becomes our fuel. When we understand grace and that we're playing with house money, changes everything. That's why we have that saying, grace changes everything. It's a difference between the two sons in the story of the prodigal son. The one son, after living in riotous living and going to the pig pen, now understands grace. He had it all, he lost it all, and there's a benevolent father who runs to him and puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. He gets it. And for the rest of his life, he'll bask in that grace. There's another brother who supposedly has done nothing wrong. Not only does he understand the grace that was lavished, is kind of angry and religious. Jesus' greatest obstacle was the religious leaders. So the first diagnostic of do you know that you know, do you know that you're his, is do you keep the commandments? And do you walk as he walked? Now, someone always brings this up. Well, Pastor Bob, the Bible says that if I confess my sins, God will forgive me, so why didn't I just sin, and in the end, God will just forgive it all? And that's about a million miles away from anything I thought when I came to Christ. Remember that story Jesus told where he said, when you find the kingdom, it's like selling everything you have to buy that field. You found that treasure. Jesus said you have to count the cost, right? Man goes to war, he counts the cost. Man builds a city, he counts the cost. You know, you come to Christ, there's, you know, I didn't come to Christ and say, okay, now show me all the loopholes. Show me what I can get away with. No, I wanted to grow and, you know, bask in everything God had 
from me. It's like an elite athlete walking around telling people that he's an elite athlete, but he never works out, he never eats right, never works on his craft. See, Jesus' followers long to become like Christ. They don't get everything right, they don't act right or love it the way they should, but they understand forgiveness, they understand confession, and God puts them back on the right path. See, you know that you know that you know that you know because you understand radical forgiveness. I had a man at the first service who I've known for years. He does so many things here. He's a great guy. He said, Pastor Bob, I, I know that I know that I know, but I, I, I just, it's a hurdle for me that sometimes the way I live and act, man, I'm not sure. And we had to go through these checkpoints like, come on, you know that you know that you know, right? Another flashback here. The night in the upper room. The Last Supper, we call it. John gives a very long body of teaching, right? In my father's house are many mansions, so forth and so on. And uh, in John 15, very famous teaching, Jesus says, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. In other words, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the source, all you have to do is abide. All you have to do is rest. Just hang around me and my life will flow in you and your joy will be full and you'll produce fruit. Now, scholars believe when Jesus got to this part of the teaching, they were already in Gethsemane. And if you know where Gethsemane is, if you look back, you'd see the temple and at the pinnacle of the temple, there would have been six-foot clusters of grapes uh, made out of stone to remind Israel they were God's vineyard and they were to produce. This is a radical teaching Jesus gave, and I think John is flashing back. Because what he's trying to say is, you know, we're not striving, we're resting. But, and you guys got to grasp this, Jesus is the source of all joy, but there is a pathway to sustain joy. And I'm going to try and teach you that pathway through the series. Part of the pathway is to understand God is the gardener. And the gardener prunes. In the world of gardening, they call this thinning out. And so what gardeners will do, and I'm really bad at this, I have roses, I love roses, but they never look good because I don't prune right. And the reason I don't prune right is I'll never prune any branch that already has a rose. But in thinning out, that's what you have to do. You have to thin out even the good branches so that the greatest source goes to the branches that will really produce, Right? Uh, God does this with you and me. As we abide, he thins out. Why? So we can produce fruit, right? He goes on to say, you can't produce any fruit without me. Here's what God knows at the gardener. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what he's crafting in your life. He can see the end product. You can't. And so he comes and he begins to prune. Now, this isn't sin. These are just prunings God makes that we would be more fruitful. So, Again, in my life, over the years, there would be things that God would speak to me. I would hear messages or go to church or read my Bible, and slowly but surely, God's like, this isn't wrong. All things are lawful, but I don't think this right now is profitable for you. And little by little, God would cut those things out of my life. wasn't wrong for anybody else. I was in Dallas a few weeks ago. I was at a conference. I was miserable. It was 100 degrees 
with high humidity every day. Um, and the people I was staying with knew I wasn't crazy about Dallas, right? And it was the last day, it was Saturday, and I said, what are you guys going to do tonight? Because I was flying home. And they said, well, we were going to go to the Eagles conference at Dallas Cowboys Stadium. I said, aren't they like 80 years old by now? You're really going to go see them? And they're like, yeah, we love those songs and all. These are Christians. And I said, uh, you know, Hotel California is about the satanic church. <laughs> and they're acting like you're acting right now. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, did you ever look at the lyrics? You know, what hotel can you enter and never leave? And they're going to kill the beast with their steely knives. And we haven't had this spirit since like 1969. 1969 is the year the satanic Bible came out. And I'm just like this reservoir of knowledge because when I got saved, I had 500 rock and roll albums. And about a year later, I heard this teaching on Satan's influence in rock and roll. And led by the Spirit of God, chucked all those albums. And I'm not a legalist, I, but I just felt like sharing that information. So Monday I get home and I text them, how was the Eagles concert? Sad emoji. Uh, we didn't go. We didn't want to be part of the satanic church, so we sat here in miserable hot Dallas on our back deck, thanks to you. That was one of the things God wanted me to cut out of my life for me. And he'll speak to you about other things, you know? Why? He's pruning, he's thinning, that we might bear more fruit. And Jesus went on to say, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot produce fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Whenever I reverse that, everything gets out of sorts. Everything goes sideways. When I want to be the vine and he's the branch, everything gets out of whack. When I know, and by the way, the word abide means to make your home. By the way, our home should look like Jesus lives there, shouldn't they? When I make my home in him, things tend to go well. When I understand the thinning process isn't for my punishment, for, but for my greater growth, things begin to make sense. What's the purpose of a vine? Produce grapes. What's the purpose of grapes? To make wine and other things. Uh, I actually looked this up in Wine for Dummies. How long do you think it takes for a vine to produce grapes worthy of making wine? Three years. That's how long the disciples were with Jesus. How long does it take to make wine that's aged, that's really good, nine years. And I found that interesting because most of us are in a hurry, aren't we? Most of us are in a hurry, even spiritually, to get where we think God wants us. And I think I have to remind myself and all of you, God is never in a hurry. And the reason I know he's not is one of the greatest metaphors in the Bible is a seed. Those of you who have gardens, you put the seed in the ground, you don't go look every day if it grows, you know it's going to take time. Seed grows, and generally it grows slowly. I was mentoring a young man who wanted to plant a church in Philadelphia. And we got to a point where he said, well, yeah, I know what you're saying, but we've got to start soon, like a couple months from now. And I'm like, um, I said, look, I'm more about process, but if you're more about passion, go for it. But can I ask you this question? The church has been around 2,000 years, and you're 35 years old. So God's been waiting for 2,000 years. You don't think he can wait another year? 
And we just don't think that way. We're just such in a hurry. And what we have to realize is that there is something God longs to do. And when you know that you know that you know him, you begin to walk as he walked and you begin to live as he lived. And it's a proof that you're his. Like who else got up on Sunday morning to be with all of us, right? It's a proof that you know him. Uh, There's another diagnostic here. Look at verse 4. Verse 7, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. One of the proofs that you know that you know that you know him is you begin to love other people. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love believes all things, knows all things. You know, I don't think anybody in here wants to be a clanging cymbal or a clanging gong. Nobody here wants to give and let it be known of men. I think, I think we're lovers of God. I think the love that invaded us comes out, and it's a proof that you know that you know that you know. Why else? You guys always get excited and always get generous when we do something. If we're sending books to Africa or helping inner city kids or sending the gospel somewhere, you guys always get excited. It's a proof that you know that you know that you know. You know, generosity does not abound in our world, but the love of Christ compels us, right? One final diagnostic. Verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven in your na- and uh, forgiven for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him as from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Forget children, fathers, young men. Just eradicate that out of your mind. You know what John's writing to? He's writing to people on a continuum, basically. John is writing to people on a continuum of spirituality and life and saying, here's what I already know about you. And it's all past tense. You have known, you have been forgiven, you have known, you have known him. And I love this one. You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. To some of you, God is saying, you are strong. You're stronger than you think. And you are forgiven. Stop beating yourself up. Get rid of the guilt and the shame. If you understand radical forgiveness, you are forgiven. I don't care what you have done. It's in the past. Some of you, that's a word from heaven today. You are forgiven. Just let it go. Some of you are strong. You're stronger than you think. It's all past tense. Because the life of God has invaded you and he's made you strong. And that alone should be the source of incredible joy. The big hand of God with your little hand. He's not holding anything against you. Now, I'm going to do this in the entire series. I'm going to jump out of 1 John. I told you there was a pathway to joy, 
And I told you that even though no one can steal your joy, there are joy killers that can lower your joy. I shared last week that sin will kill your joy. If you're an unconfessed sin, that'll steal your joy. Um, if you're an aberrant teaching, legalism will steal your joy. I've seen it a million times. Uh, there are many things that will kill your joy. Loving the world will steal your joy. Um, we'll get into a lot of these things, but I want to talk about people today. I said last week, people can steal your joy. And I want to say something now, and please don't take it out of context. If you want to be a joyful person, this is about as elementary as you could ever get. If you want to be a joy-filled person, person. You have to hang around with joy-filled people. Does this make sense to anybody? And here's where I don't want you taking me out of context. I don't want you to leave here and say, geez, Pastor Bob wants us to eradicate all the non-joyful, sad people in life who are struggling and just hang out with all the happy people. It's not what I said. First of all, we're not talking about temperament or personality. Some of you would rate out as enthusiastic and joyful just in base personality. That's not what we're talking about. And yes, we weep with those who weep and we carry others' burdens. I get all that. I want to give you an illustration. Uh, Wayne Cordiero did this for years. Those of you who have been around know it. Um, he talks about a tank. And every tank has a fill and a drain. And what Wayne teaches is, you know, sometimes our tanks get low uh, because there's too much drain and not enough fill. Now, the opposite, you could have all fill and no drain, and that's not good. So when my tank gets low, there's some things i got to check up on. I'm probably not playing basketball enough. I'm not golfing enough. I'm not reading books I like enough. I'm not spending time with family enough, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to add more fill. But today, for our purpose, I want this to be your joy bucket. And if your joy bucket is low, you need to be around joyful people. Let me, let me give you an illustration. So there's a counselor that I go to from time to time. And one day he handed me an emotional wheel. Probably should have put it on the screen for you. And in the wheel, there were six categories, powerful, sad, joyful. You know, it had six emotions. And then you could trace the wheel out to about 18 other characteristics. And I had never seen this, and he gave it to me. And I, I swear, in 10 seconds, I knew where I was. And pointed right at it, and I was sad. And I looked at all the prongs, and I'm like, that's me. And that's where I'm at right now. And I went home and thought about it, and I realized, pondered it. Um, seven things in my life had come to an end simultaneously. Things I had started, things that had gone on for a long time. Uh, nobody died. I realized nobody died, but I was in the state of grief. I was sad because seven things that gave me joy all came to an end at one time. Now, let me say this. That season went on for six months, but I was still joyful. I was joyful in my relationship with God and the things of God. That never wavered. But emotionally, I was sad. But when you have a loss of joy, 
You need to be around joyful people. Some of you, myself included, need to make an appointment with joy. You really do. You need to be around people that are inspiring, people that are positive, people's lives that are characterized by they know God deeply and they know what God's doing in this world. Um, when I say getting around people of joy, there are people who lack joy or who are low in joy because they choose to be there. They choose to be victims of life. They choose to look at the dark side of everything. Some of these people are cynical, and that's the opposite of joy, by the way. Cynicism is where you see the wrong in everything. If you get around these people, your joy will wane. People that are legalistic are this way. Every time you get around them, they're talking about how bad the world is, how bad the church is. Uh, you, know, you want to talk about life, they want to talk about how all the holidays have pagan origins. Right? We've all been there. Some of you need an appointment with joyful people. People that are producing fruit. People that God is pruning, that they would produce more fruit. People that are bold about where life is going and have an awareness of all that life can be. We need God. He's the source of all joy. We need people. Uh, several years ago, a movie came out called Inside Out. It's made by DreamWorks, and um, I don't know if it's animation or whatever. It is CGI, but it's a cartoon, basically. You know, a kid's movie, but my whole family went as adults. And I got to tell you, they could teach a master's degree on this movie. And the premise of the movie is this girl is 12 years old, and they're inside her brain, these characters, and they're running the controls of her life. And in the control room there are these characters that are emotions. And one of the characters is joy, and the other character is sadness. And there's a scene in the movie I don't think anybody in my family will forget because they're running for their lives inside this girl's body, and joy is dragging sadness. And they're running at top speed. And I gotta tell you, my family was laughing hysterically, we're the only ones laughing, because my middle daughter's my most gifted, but she's also melancholy and has a disposition towards sadness. Now, she has the joy of the Lord, but that's her makeup and disposition. My wife is effervescent and joyful and basically has drug her through life, and that's why we all left, right? She's in Nashville now. She's doing great. When, when she doesn't call, life is amazing. When our cell phones start lighting up, she needs an appointment with joy. She calls us. But you know what's important about that? She knows to call us. See, that's, that's the pathway to joy. There's not a problem with the season of life you're in. The trick is, do you know the guardrails and do you know the parameter to keep you in line? Do you know enough to make an appointment with joy. That appointment might be a day with God, might be in a day with joyful people, but I'm telling you from experience, Jesus is the source of all joy, he's not gonna jump a, a joy bucket on you. Seek, knock, ask, and you will find rest for your souls. No more striving. 
abide in me.